Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And today we're going to learn an awful lot about a very unique place. Ben Siegel, proprietor of Bangers, is going to be sharing his story with us about a very unique concept, very well-established, very, very large restaurant, bar, outdoor event space. Ben, welcome to Corner Booth. Oh, thank you very much, Chris. And hey, Barry, how you doing? Good, good. Like I said, great to meet you, Ben. Could you uh, introduce our, our listeners to your concept? Tell us a little about where it is, what kind of concept it is, and and then we're going to ask you questions about, you know, what got you in that direction, what led you here. Yeah, you know, it's, again, an interesting time to ask that question because we're, we're sort of in, in a bit of, a, of an evolution of the concept as it stands right now, and I'm sure we'll touch on that, but you know, overall, it's, you know, the name is Banger Sausage House and Beer Garden. And at our core, that's what we are. We're a sausage house and beer garden on the eastern edge of downtown Austin, Texas. And we're in a sort of a very unique location. So we're in an area called the Rainy Street District. And it is sort of the product of some unintended consequences in changing the zoning of a kind of a, a physical area. So basically, it was an old residential neighborhood that they wanted to incorporate into uh, kind of the downtown. And they changed the zoning with the hopes that big high-rise buildings would get built. But just as the world turns and, and things change, the environment wasn't ripe for development. But I think that the environment's always ripe for, uh, for restaurants and bars, if you know what you're doing. And so uh, that went from a restricted use to a permitted use. And so this kind of restaurant bar district kind of appeared out of nowhere in all these old homes and houses in the district. And so we're kind of a part of that. And, and since then, you know, our business has really evolved from, you know, a kind of large scale, high volume restaurant to very much an events business. So we do these really large corporate events. And so while, you know, the restaurant business is our primary revenue source, our events business is really our primary profit source. Yeah, I could go, you know, we're an, we're an entertainment venue, we've got tons of production facilities. And, and like I say, for Restaurant people, we have we have a whole lot of toys here, so happy mm-hmm. to expand on any of that. Yeah, one of the things that really caught my attention, which I want to ask you more about on uh, some point during the interview, is you know y- you get a lot of business from corporate events, and and I had heard something recently that business lunches, business dinners, corporate events, that kind of thing is starting to make a comeback post COVID. Are you feeling any difference, or have things been kind of just you know, steady as they go over the last few years? Yeah, no. So, I mean, certainly seen a ramp up, right? And just to sort of quantify what we're talking about, we're, we're in sort of a unique segment of the market where we are actually competing with hotel ballrooms for that share of business, uh, okay. right? Trying to make a little bit more of a compelling argument for, you know, having a little bit more of a soulful party with an identity, something, you know, we're in Austin, Texas. So really kind of like an authentic Texas feel. So, kind of playing in that area. But again, we're talking hundreds of people up to multiple thousands of people at one of these events. So 
but to directly answer, yes, we're, we 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 are seeing that business pick up kind of post pandemic. I'll be really interested to see what happens in the second half of the year. The first half, call it up through May, before the heat really set in here in Central Texas. You know, we, we were seeing everything go kind of crazy, and, and everything seemed to kind of simmer simmer down the last <laughs> couple of months. So how'd you get into this? Uh, was this uh, a dream since you were a kid that you wanted to be in hospitality? What what led you down this path to where you're, what you're doing now? Yeah, man, I probably not since I was a kid, but certainly since I was in college. For me, the seed of the idea came as a, probably a sophomore in college going out on 6th Street. There was an old sausage cart called The Best Worst and you know, two o'clock in the morning, the bars would let out. I was a big fan of their spicy Italian. I'd wait in line. And one night I was sitting there looking around and just the line was so much longer there than everywhere else. And it just occurred to me, man, there's not a restaurant that's just selling sausages, like it's sort of an exclusive thing and like a concept of itself. And so like with a lot of things that I do in a business perspective, the a little bit of it's self-serving, right? What would I like? What do I think is missing? And, and I try to look at it from my view as a customer you know, but then started the uh, what I think is a, a common process for entrepreneurs, but just a lot of you know self doubt. Hey, I can't really do this. This doesn't make any sense. That kind of stuff. But you know, the idea persists, right? And and you know, I kind of subscribe to this idea that you know ideas they just kind of live out there in the world, and and they're yours to grab. Otherwise, someone else is going to grab it. And so, uh, you know, it was sort of hovering around for a little bit, and then I, you know, it ended up moving. To Los Angeles and, and a similar concept to the one I'd been envisioning opened up uh, and they were real successful. And so for me, that was kind of the motivating nudge I needed to take action. And I just said, well, if this if, if a sausage beer concept can work in Los Angeles, California, where people don't really like sausage or drink beer, uh, I think I can move back to Austin, Texas and make a go of it. Yeah, I hear you. So you came back to Austin uh, and then was this particular site still homes at that time or had it turned into a business that then you took over and flipped? It's really interesting to, to learn how this came about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, the 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 property kind of the the, the property changed, um, I want to say, and, you know, the, I'd say the zoning changed in, um, I believe, like 2001, something like that. And. Um, and, you know, there was a process of, again, trying to get development going, uh, but excuse me, 2004, 2005 is when the zoning changed, um, 2007, 2008, you had, you know, the, the kind of great recession set in and, 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 and kind of fall out. And then in 2009, uh, a woman from Houston named Bridget Dunlap came down, uh, and she actually opened up the first place on Rainy Street, a place called Luster Pearl. Um, and so we were in what I would consider to be kind of the front end of the second wave of places that opened up. And so it, it was still very much the Wild West back then. It was still a relatively risky decision, kind of was it going to work, wasn't it going to work? Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I mean, there were, pe- you were, there were people living on the street. You know, as a matter of fact, you know, we, we now have kind of three contiguous lots. So we kind of have the sort of the biggest, at least from a bar, restaurant bar perspective, kind of the biggest footprint on the block. And, uh, you know, the last one we purchased, we got two at the same time. And then the third one was really, you know, and, and I, I'm not saying this in, in, to be crass or anything, but it was it was really kind of a, a crack house. You had a, a crackhead and a homeless guy that were living in a house and had no utility hookups. They were um, 
just it was sort of a mess down here. And uh, so we were able to buy that and incorporate it into what we were doing. And it was interesting times. So when so, you go ahead, Chris, I was just going to say, let's kind of finish the picture of the general concept. And now we can kind of get the idea was rezoned, redeveloped homes became a business. You've got a very large capacity. Do you have regular hours or does it vary versus versus events? And do you have like a core menu that you always serve and then maybe separate things for events? How, do, how does bangers work? Yeah. So you're, you're asking really great questions as, I, as I'd expect, right? Because I, I, t- I talked a little bit about this evolution and, and part of that is trying to figure out how to bring parity between these two business lines that we have and to kind of smooth out these friction points that exist. One of those being service type and the other one being the menus that we serve. So you want those to be as similar as possible. So as we pivot from one to another, it's as seamless as it can be. And so, um, you know, uh, historically, the, um, you know, the hours have essentially were the business model is such that we're open our regular hours unless someone's willing to foot the bill for an event, in which case, uh, you know, in the beginning before we expanded, we were only in the full buyout business because we really couldn't segment the space. As I mentioned earlier, we were able to purchase this third lot and there were a few main focuses and, and problems we were trying to solve in the business and opportunities we were trying to exploit as well. One of those was the ability to segment the spaces into smaller sections um, so we could not only do multiple parties, but also run our regular business concurrently with our event business and kind of these different formations. Um, and so, you know, uh, we have come much closer to menu parity as I speak to you today, and we've come much closer to, um, you know, service parity as I speak to you today. But uh, that's only recent as of about six or eight weeks ago. Uh, and before that, you had kind of a full service sit down restaurant when we were open for restaurant business more of a buffet for most of our larger events, sometimes family style if we were doing, you know, kind of some some smaller events. And again, smaller for us is a couple hundred people. Um, and then uh, and then from a um, from a menu perspective, you know, again, there was a lot of crossover there, but not as much as there should have been. And so, you know, there was instances, especially in the beginning, one of our choke points was cold storage. You know, we just, you know, because again, I think another one of the beautiful parts about the events business is a lot of those large scale corporate events are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So your slowest restaurant days, which is amazing, but we go from serving, you know, two, three hundred people on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday to fifteen hundred people, two thousand people on the same day. And so until we could kind of figure this out, there was a lot of closures as a result of prep just getting ready for the big event. Now the money was there, it was worth it, um, but still not ideal because you you start to kind of alienate your customer base, right? And so once again, that pain point drives innovation, that innovation being get these menus to be more similar, get the service style to be more similar. In terms of your menu, I mean, um, clearly uh, from what you're telling me, that it, it, sausages are a big part of it, beer, 
Um, in terms of sourcing menu items, uh, do, you, do you have your own brew operations? Are you just are you offering local craft beers? Are you making your own sausage? Is there is there a story behind that that uh, makes it even more compelling? You know, I'm going to a place. Hey, they make their own sausage. They make their own beer. What's mm-hmm. what's 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 the uh, what's the narrative there that that uh, that that makes it kind of makes it even more sexy? Yeah, well, look at you'll you'll come to find. I really love to to from from business perspective thinking superlatives, right? So we actually have the largest draft system in the state of Texas. So we have two hundred and two beers on draft. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, we have the largest sausage selection of any restaurant in the state as well, maybe the country. I don't know that there's a ranking, so I feel mm-hmm. like we can make that that yeah. claim either way. But anywhere from twenty to thirty sausages um, in house. We do not brew our own beer, uh, so all the beer is brought in. The goal is as much as we can get from Texas, but the best beer that we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and really, I, I think we were kind of early on with taking a craft only stance uh, and kind of shooing away some of the larger domestics. And, and so again, much more commonplace today, less common about 11 years ago when we opened up. Um, but we, from a culinary perspective, we are fully scratch. And so one of the things that we did uh, with the expansion we, we spoke a little bit about is, man, we've built a full meat processing facility. We put in a whole smokehouse. We have a pickling room. We have a fermentation room. We have a curing chamber. Um, and so there's there's a lot of, um, again, sort of a, a lot of toys and, and, and a lot of, um, yeah, just specialty processes that we do, right? In a lot of ways, I view us as kind of stewards of a lot of old world um you know, ways of doing things, right? Like it, it's, you know, there's no vent, like it took, we spent a fortune on a very primitive smokehouse, right? There's no hood vents in there. It's all wood fire, nothing mechanical in the whole place. Um, and the same thing on the sausage side, right? Um, you know, again, we're, we're, we're still continuing to hand crank everything and, and, uh, and do it all from scratch, make our all, all our own condiments, things like that. Wow. Is there retail? Um, you're making this many sausages. Do you do you sell any of that in, in local supermarkets, or do uh, guests take them home with them to cook at their own places? Man, it's you know it's a great question. Um, the short answer is no, not right now. And mm-hmm. the longer answer is you know yes, we will, and and we sort of have right. I think one of the things that I have come to appreciate about our business is tangential businesses are businesses onto themselves, right? So retail, catering, things like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're very similar, but they require kind of a different discipline set, uh, you know, different individuals to kind of run and focus on those things, different sets of equipment, if you want to be excellent at it, right? We are a business that allows you to wing it and do a pretty good job if you want to. That's never been the kind of business that I wanted to be in. And and so, you know, and, and, and I would say, Kind of up until the pandemic, you know, our largest operational challenge was volume. It was the number of people that wanted to come to us and how do we service them in a good way. And, you know, again, I know that that's not everyone's case and and it's the best, I believe it's the best problem you can have, but it's a real problem nonetheless. And so it, 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 it stopped us from trying to capitalize on some of the low hanging fruit opportunities that seem to be right in front of us. Um, now during the pandemic, it gave us an opportunity to play with some of those ideas because the volume wasn't there. Then we really got to get into, um, uh, again, retail. And we played with that. We tried to exploit 
the gold belly platform and 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 we've kind of made some really slick packaging and things like that you know but i i think to really make a go of that business that's a real volume business trying to sell sausage from a wholesale perspective at profit you got to be moving millions of pounds of the stuff mm-hmm. and so once again right like i i view that as you know i need some kind of a key player that really a has relationships and b understands kind of product placement in in the grocer's world right that's just not me and doesn't exist on my team Mm -hmm. um and so as we as as our restaurant business began to pick up there our in-house facilities really are only designed to accommodate what we have going on and and so we we call time out on that but i I do believe i think that's a good point uh that he made too we're thinking about a few previous podcast visitors that I think have kind of walked across that same bridge. You know, remember whether it was Burge with Salada, um, uh, whether it was a good company with their pecan pie facility that is now really big. But as I remember, I think uh, when they were in their formations, I think they, uh, they probably echoed exactly what you were saying, that it's a big, big step and it can be wonderfully successful uh, to develop more value to your brand. But it is going to have to start with a commitment with the right people that understand the packaging, the shipping. And because um, uh, you could, you could probably step into it when you're ready and it'll become a monstrous division say, based on some of the other successes that we saw small independents do with their product line. Yeah, and, and look, I, I think, it, it, you know, one of the lessons I've learned over and over again, you know, and has become, you know, reinforced the longer I've been in business is, is really just that it kind of doesn't matter what business you're in, right? But it, but it's a people sport, right? It's just, it's just a people sport. And, you know, I think one of the challenges that restaurant operators have as we try to grow and expand, and especially as 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 the, as complexity is introduced into the equation, is there's a difference between somebody that runs a great shift and somebody that can run a great business. And what I think restaurant owners often try to do is say, "Man, you're an amazing GM. You run a great shift. Let's now run this this great. Let's help me run this organization. Let's scale this out to." two, three, 10, 20, 20 different restaurants. Let's get a retail division going. And, you know, you just put somebody that was excellent at, at something, gave them, you know, tried to put them in a completely different scenario and 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 often they flounder and fail. And I can raise my hand and say, man, have I made that mistake a bunch of times. Um, and so I think that's another thing that I've, I've grappled with a little bit and, and, and somewhere that I'm, I, I guess something that I'm really grateful for at this moment in time is, you know, I do believe that that you know I've got a handful of people at the top of the restaurant, at the top of our organization, for really the first time that are not only excellent at like kind of the job part of the job, right, the running of the ship. Yes, they can do that, but it's also like, holy smokes, you're really smart, right? Like, and 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 that's not the right word. Not that these other people aren't, but smart in the way of um, kind of this higher level business thinking when you start when you start thinking organizationally not just pure restaurant ops. Well, that's an interesting point. I mean, um, I'm imagining like a lot of operators, um, you want to keep your people by giving them a sense that there's a place for them on, in the long term. And that means developing folk. Um, what best practices have you learned in terms of identifying talent 
and then developing it and fostering it in the direction you need to go. How do you, do you have people who do, you've just hired and after three weeks, you have an eye on them saying, this is somebody who I, I want to grow with my company. Um, what, what's your strategy? Man. So like what you're hitting on is really everything, right? Like I think it's the, the most fundamental and, and one of the most difficult things that someone can do, right? Cause it's, it's a people sport, right? And so you're, t- you're what we're talking about is the filter through which they come into the organization, and once you, and what you do with them once they're there, right? And so, um, you know, so we're we're having a lot of these conversations right now. So you know, I, I think first of all, and again, I've gone different places, but I, but I keep coming back to kind of core values as the primary filter through which you bring people into the organization and you kind of judge them once they're there, right? And so um, I, I think there's, you know, there's a process and there's a million of them of how you get clear on that, right? Because it's like, because it, it, that's the thing. We all got to be rowing in the same direction. We all got to be singing from the same song sheet. And I think it starts with that, right? A culture is a group of people with a shared set of values. So who are you and and are you one of us or not, right? So then once we have the, the kind of a shared set of values, you can't also ignore the fact that life is going on all around us, right? And so from there, we're, we're kind of thinking about like this concept. There's a, a book that we took a lot of inspiration from is, is actually the, the uh, it's called No Rules Rules. It's the Netflix culture book. Uh, and they speak about this concept of like talent density, right? And so really getting your team to a team of A players. And so, so it's, it's kind of looking quite simply at the organization and saying, all right, so yes, you're, yes, you're a values fit. But you're you're also one of three things, right? You you either are an A player, in which case, again, we want to continue to grow. We want to continue to kind of spend time with you. And I think that's another thing that you miss is is as owners and operators, we tend to spend more time on our problems than our opportunities, right? And 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 say, wow, you're 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 amazing. So I don't need to pay you any attention, right? And so trying to get out of that line of thinking. Then the next group of people is people that are not yet A players, but are on their way there, right? That, that, that they're moving in that direction. And then the last group is people that, that, that are not, right? They either don't have the potential, they don't have what it takes, or they're moving in the other direction, in which case we need to help them exit the organization. And so, you know, I, I think something that we, we talk about and focus a lot on is, is that concept of movement, that people are continuing to move up or they are moving out of the organization. Um, and then from there, if there's values alignment and you have the potential to be great at whatever it is that you do, and, and I guess that's the other thing I want to say, right? I, I believe everybody has the ability to be an A player at something, right? And so it's looking and saying, hey, it might not be what you've been hired for here. Is there another opportunity in the organization? And if they're not, the kindest thing that we can do to you is have that direct conversation. We really try to lean into candor here, have that direct conversation as soon as possible and give you the opportunity to be successful somewhere else. Um, And so I think candor really falls a lot into this conversation of how you grow people. You know, and you're talking um, and the things you're saying, which I think should really resonate with anybody who's trying to develop their team. But what I'm guessing, if listening to you is that, Training is a big part of what goes on in your business and evaluation. If I'm working for you every quarter, at least somebody's going to sit down with me and say, okay, let's talk about how it's going. 
Mm-hmm. Where you want me to do? Um, like like any good business, like a huge corporation would do. What's your best practices there to execute this philosophy? So look, you know, I want to just, you know, it's so easy to, you know, what what I want to be clear to anyone that's listening to this is like, this is hard stuff, right? It, these are easy concepts to grasp. They're super difficult to implement, right? Like I've known for 11 years that the best thing we can do for our people is a regularly cadenced one-on-one, how you doing? Hey, let's do it monthly. Art, right, we're not doing that. Maybe we'll do it quarterly. Oh, we can't really hit that. Okay, fine. How about every six months? It's just hard, man. And so I can tell you what we're trying right now in the conversation we just had a couple of weeks ago is, hey, let this doesn't need to be that big a deal, right? Because here's what happened. We just let go of five people, right? And and part of that was we've, we've in, in, instituted kind of this new system. We've gotten a lot more efficient. We were also making clear kind of like we talked about, hey, this isn't a meritocracy. We're not just spreading hours to everybody. We want our best players on the field. And that's that, right? And that's that. And so so these five people aren't our best players. Every All our management team knew that. Well, look, let's talk about the conversations we've had with these people about that fact. Oh, so net, A, nothing's been written down, and B, there's no clear cadence of conversation, right? So, like, so again, we just dropped the ball on this, and this is a few weeks ago. And so what we moved to is, like, you, you as a manager need to be having a conversation with somebody on your team every single shift right? And and that's been divvied up. And it's, hey, five minutes. Here's what's going great. Here's where your opportunities are. And and is there anything that we can do for you? Right? And, and it's also two-way, right? What do you see as your biggest struggles? What do you see as your biggest strengths? And 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 then vice versa. What can we do for each other? How can, how, you know, how can you help us? How can we help you? That kind of a thing. And, sure. and it gets recorded, it gets written down, and it's just, and it doesn't need to be that big of a deal. Um, and so, so far, so good. I mean, so far we've been, we've, we've had that cadence up. We're, I think two weeks into that new thing. So putting it back on the managers, making the managers manage and do their job, I guess. In a, in a sort of a systematic and regimented way. Right. So not just like, Hey, grab, like, you know, grab anybody you want, but like, again, there's a clear list and they've got to work their way through that list. Right. right. And that's it. That's at the hourly level. And then above that, there is again, Speaking for more casual candor that just kind of like layer that into the system, right? Like see something, say something. And then we have been more consistent with larger, you know, kind of quarterly reviews with our kind of salaried management team, but there's less of them. So it's a bit easier. You know, Chris, what I'm hearing from Ben, uh, maybe you're hearing it too, is for an independent concept, he's putting together what I consider a pretty sophisticated HR department. However, you're pulling it together. And and the thing oh, that I'm yeah. loving about this, and I, I'd like both of you to talk about it, is that I love what you're saying about developing people, you know, getting your keeping your A players, rewarding them, getting your, your B players to be A players and and let the others go because they're just not working out. And this is not me whining. I'm just going to play the role of a whining operator. Ah, gee, Ben, but we can't get enough people. We're just lucky to have warm bodies here. We can't do this. I don't know if you ever hear that from other operators, but to both of you, what, you know, push back against that. You know, Chris, you want to go first? You want me to go first? Well, yeah, what I think Ben's doing a really good job of and other successful operators are that uh, that help overcome that obstacle where management sometimes settles. And I think that's what you're talking about, Barry, where it's kind of like, I love the principles. I hear what you're saying. 
but I'm going to just settle for right now because we need people. At least they're here, you know. Um, and before you know it, we're accepting mediocrity. Now we've heard other people, you know, say before that the enemy really of becoming successful is accepting mediocrity. You know, we we can't mm-hmm. accept mediocrity. And I think what what Ben's doing and what other successful independents have done is you find your way of pushing back because these principles are fluid. Uh, I know they might work in larger companies. I know this idea of uh, it's a people business. I love the idea of the bead, uh, you know, the, the player being developed, uh, A players as examples. And I know we, you can read those in numerous books and I know large companies do it, but you win as an independent if you just find your own way of implementing it. So going back to Ben's example of every manager, let's practice every shift, finding something to say to every staff member. Two, three, four, five minutes, a check-in, a motivation, a reminder, a compliment. These are the most basic tools, but that's a start. See, then it gets to be the group activities and the daily shift meetings. Then it gets to be the focus groups, the quarterly meetings where you're engaging staff so that they actually have input on things like parties, planning, marketing efforts, menu. It gets into the bigger stuff. But the only way to push back from that accepting mediocrity is start with a small effort and then build with the momentum. I think that's spot. Right? So so I think there's two things. I think what you said, Chris, is spot on. I do think what, what Barry was saying is, is is slightly nuanced, right? And 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 or, or slightly different, right? Because what I'm hearing is I think owners can slip into sort of a victim's mindset. I'm at the effect of the environment. Look at like there are no people, this isn't fair. And it's like get over it right like accept reality and do something about it you know and 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 i think the the market's changed dramatically like what you've got to pay a cook today is just seems unfair relative to what you had to pay a cook a year ago it doesn't matter if you think it's unfair if you want to hire a cook pay the rate or somebody else will right and like and also create an environment that they want to be in and I think that's another part of it. And another thing that I've seen, right, is like, you know, I don't mean to get sort of hippie or esoteric on you, right? But like your organization is going to emit an energy, right? And, and it has to do with your culture. And it's going to either attract people or it's going to repel people. And as someone that has had a toxic culture and someone that hasn't had an amazing culture and kind of everything in between, I've experienced that. And I've experienced the same thing saying, we can't hire anybody. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And like, and, and what ultimately has to happen, the only way it ever changes is when you take a hard look in the mirror and say, I'm the owner. I'm going to take my responsibility for this. And I have the power to make change. And we were in this position about two years ago. We had post-COVID, we made some really well-intended, horrible hires at the top of the organization. And we just completely wrecked the culture. We just completely wrecked the culture. Then there's, and again, it, this is a longer conversation we probably have time for, but there is a, in the in the world of kind of human growth and development, we have some pretty radical ideas and some pretty interesting concepts that we're playing with over here. And, but there's like a, there's a real fine line with this stuff and it can be, um, it, it can be weaponized very easily if, if you're not careful. And, and it's what happened to us. And, you know, as as someone who considers himself to be a recovering people pleaser, right? Like that someone that, that, that all the stuff that I was just preaching a minute ago in the first half of my career, 
the idea that you would deliver bad news to somebody was just me. How could you do that? Like, that's not, you know, we're all supposed to be fret and like just not understanding the gift of candor, like fundamentally not understanding it. You just kept people around and it was a thing. And, and I just looked up and we just had this toxic culture and customers weren't coming and people didn't want to work here other than the clicks that had formed. And so, um, you know, it, it, it was a very deliberate effort of making some, you know, kind of clearing house at the top. And over the course of about a year and a half, we turned over about 90% of the organization. And this is a guy that all I ever wanted to do was hold on to people, right? Like just the longer you worked for me, the better it was, no matter how you perform. So this was as painful a thing as you can imagine. But as I look up now, we got a line of people that want to work here. We got a line of managers that want to come work for us because we were, we just, we did the hard thing. We took responsibility and we did what we needed to do. And, and, and it's, it's really cool what's happening here. And the marketplace knows that. And so people want to come and work for us. Yeah. And you said it all, but um, just paraphrasing and something I'd like the listeners to, to really consider there are people out there who love hospitality and want to do a great job. And it, isn't all about the money for them. And if you uh, if you accept mediocre, mediocrity at any level of the organization, they're gone. Yeah, that is true. The And where they're going to go is, as Ben just painted, you're either sending out a, a an attractive vibe. We have a work environment that is attracting good people or you're sending out we're a work environment that repels good people. And uh, you're, it's one or the other. And I think you're right there. There is no success in between. You're, you're, you're one or the other. And so your good people will be repelled. They'll mm-hmm. leave. And they'll go find a place where they feel like they really fit. You know, yeah, A and- players want to work with A players, right? Like you want to stand shoulder to shoulder, look to your left, right, and say, I'm, I'm amongst my peers, right? Like, And if you don't, if you want to just be in that alpha spot, again, it's just not – you can only have one of those people. Right. Those aren't team players. Those are exceptional individuals. Right. But if you want to build a team, you need parity on the team that you want to build. And any deviation from that, that's not acknowledged. Right. Like, hey, we know this person is not where they need to be, but we can all agree they're on their way. Right. Like and they're making movement and they're making the effort. There's again, a players that are team minded. They got time for that, but they don't have time for let's pretend this person is as good as everybody else and not really do anything about the fact that they're not. Hmm. Well, once more, Chris, we talked to a successful operator and the conversation gets back to what you've been saying for what, since I've known you 20 some years, people first business. It, it is. There's this, there's this, no matter how you add it up, there seems to be a formula that every successful person comes to get to. And it starts with people then plus product. And, and of course, we already talked about the really cool uniqueness of this product, craft beer before it was cool, um, homemade sausage, uh, curing room, pickling room. So there's got to be the point of difference. We already talked about that. And then plus the consistent policies and procedures that equal profit. But that formula does start with people. Um, now, I'd like to shift a little bit. It's still people related, but let's shift a little bit from, say, staff and management to the community, because you've been around for 11 years. You've got a a slightly different customer clientele because not only is it the regular resident, maybe people for lunch after work that want to come there, 
But you've also got, say, special events, visitors, tourists, these large companies that hang out for, say, a sales and marketing meeting in a hotel for four days, and you book them for one night. How do you market to that? How do people know your brand? How do they how do they hear of you or know how to book with you? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a layered answer to that question, right? Because because you're you're talking about like different customer cases, you know. On the one hand, I, I think you know from from a restaurant business perspective, I think our core customer is not locals, but it's a place locals bring out of town guests, right? So it's like you know, rainy street, it's busy. It's again, there's a kind of a touristy feel to it, but like, but we've, we've got, we bangers have a very authentic. And again, since we're 11 years old in this kind of an environment, we're sort of talked about in some of these older Austin restaurant institutions. Right. And so it's like, Oh, and, and again, it's big and all the unique offerings, like you said. And so there's an element of word of mouth, right? There's just an element. Like I was talking to someone about, you know, there's Matt's El Rancho as a play, which again, I'm not saying we're, we're like that, but you're there 30, 40 years and all of a sudden back to school comes. And now every one of those kids, every one of those parents that went to UT, that went to Matt's El Rancho, that's now bringing their kid. And one of the places they went to is still there. Like, you know, they had like a $65,000 day or something. It was like some like monster day, you know, it, with back to school, despite the heat and everything else. And so, so in terms of our core restaurant customer, you know, look, I, I think we do a good job on social media. And then there's just an element of there's a benefit to having been around for 11 years. You have word of mouth and and you kind of fit into that. Right. Um, you know, I, again, I, I think that we, you know, because of the uniqueness of the concept, you know, largest draft system, largest sausage selection, all the superlatives I was talking about before, you find your way onto a lot of the, the lists that exists on the internet. So now, once again, you're looking to come, you know, to Austin, where, where can you go? You're, you're doing your Google search. And so we, we're on a lot of those lists and then just our sheer size, right? Like we do a tremendous, um, you know, it, it, I can remember we're back to having the conversation, but kind of pre pandemic, we were talking about building a luggage rack on site because we were a plate. We were the first place they'd come to when they got off the airplane because we were so big, they could kind of wait around. So they always had bags with them. And then we do this amazing Sunday brunch. And so we were the last place they'd go before they left for the airport. So we always had all these bags everywhere. In terms of the, so so that's kind of our regular restaurant business. I think there's, you know, there's just having been here for a while, there's getting on the lists. And then there's just kind of that word of mouth, kind of locals talking to their out-of-town guests that are coming in. That's great. Then you're talking about the convention business, right? And, and so for that, right, you know, you want to have, as few conversations as possible in order to have that go out to as many people as possible. And so from there, we're, you know, we have a dedicated sales, you want to talk about an A player. We have this woman that works for us named, named, named Chrissy, Chrissy Carter. She's unbelievable. Um, and so she does all of our event sales. Um, and, you know, she's single-handedly responsible for millions of dollars worth of revenue. And, you know, she's fostered relationships with, with, you know, what you call DMCs or destination management companies. And so they are going to be the, the you know, so for, again, we're, these are not for like a 50 person corporate dinner, right? So this is when, you know, a convention is coming to down, a corporation is coming to town, they partner with a DMC and the DMC, again, destination management company is going to plan these multi-day events at all these different venues, right? We're on, like, we are of a size. It's another big differentiator for us is, we have an 1800 person standing room capacity 
even even if we weren't that great at what we did, there's still just a limited number of options. Like, you know, we're in the conversation with the hotel ballrooms, right? It's that size stuff. Um, and so we really market to, we really court the DMCs specifically as it relates to that kind of large scale events. And then also kind of at the level that with what we're doing, um, there's kind of the, the government agencies. So here it's like Visit Austin. So there's like the economic development arm of the city that they're trying to attract like convention business and they're trying to sell them on the amenities of the city. We're actually considered an amenity to the city of Austin for these large conventions. Well, you know, Barry, we've talked to people that of course talk about the layout of their restaurant. We've heard coat rooms and hat check many times. I don't think we've ever heard luggage racks. No, I mean, that's like a convention center, you know, where you're <laughs> going to get the last three hours of the convention and, and then run off to the airport. So, and, and it's amazing. And, and one of the things, I mean, I, I have to ask because you're in Austin and anybody who's mm -hmm. following the economy of the United States knows Austin is the fastest growing metro in the country. That's just a matter of statistics. Um, are you, uh, are you feeling it? um on your side of things and you know for other for other listeners including where i'm here in the raleigh durham area which is the second fastest growing metro yeah. um what do you you know what can you tell operators in these places that are growing quickly which is also attracting competitors on staying ahead of the curve and maybe you already have but um austin is a pretty pretty unusual place right now it's it's growing by leaps and bounds in good ways and then of course getting expensive to live there too i understand mm -hmm. man i mean it just there's a lot there uh barry right like you know it, it's interesting you know I, you know before you were on i was i flashed to chris you know outside of my window where there's across the street there's a 50-story building being constructed and it's one of i think six or eight 50-story buildings being constructed in the rainy street district alone not to mention the approximately six additional high-rise buildings that are under 50 stories that are under construction in the district. So, yes, Austin is the fastest-growing you know city in the country. If Rainy Street isn't the densest development area in the country, I'd like to see what it is. And so, we are actually in a bit of a our gift is our curse scenario right now. You know, so we've got we've really got to get to 2025. Uh, up until then, it's 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 the growth is actually hurting us at this point in time right now. And but that is a physical construction thing, right? You have like I, I just named a dozen different significant construction projects that in a lot of cities they get one of these every ten years. We have a dozen going on at the same time, and the Rainy Street district is very small, right? And this little, and it, it's almost irresponsible what's going on. Now look, we get to twenty twenty five. We're going to have, you know, an 1800 person venue sitting in the middle of Manhattan level density. I mean, real, like real density. Um, and so, you know, but look, I guess a, a productive answer to the question is this, right? You know, so what are we doing with that? Um, it, 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 there is a need to really be future and forward thinking, right? And so, and so I'll give you a couple of examples of kind of things we're doing to combat that. And so like, so right now we are building the restaurant we believe we need to be in two years from now when kind of the construction dust settles. Okay. And that is, wow. So we have all this, like right now we're really kind of this special event, very indulgent place, right? Sausage, beer, like 
and again, it's it's not it's, we're not a locals place because everyone would you know be fat and die of a heart attack if they ate here every day, right? It's it's indulgent <laughs> food, um, and and so it, it it's you know you eat here once a month, whatever, right? And so so with all the density, how do we become a place you can come to every day while still kind of maintaining our roots, right? And so again we're a unique place. We're so large. And so what we're morphing into is really a, um, this hybrid food hall concept where you'll have a, you have a sausage house. There's a smokehouse. We're in the pro like the sausage house, smokehouse are both open. You have the sandwich shop that's, that will be open, you know, probably in the fourth quarter of this year. Uh, we have a whole basement that we're going to build out. There's an opportunity to kind of line food trucks out in the front of the business. And, 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 and then, you know, another conversation we've been having as well is like, well, right now, what we're serving is very indulgent and not necessarily good for you. However, with some pretty basic tweaks, and while still giving people the opportunity to indulge, the way healthy eating has moved is really very meat forward, very meat focused. And so if we can just pull back on the sugar and some of these sauces and things that make things delicious, but make things not diet friendly, we can actually be, um, you know, actually be a healthy place all of a sudden while still catering to folks that, that don't want to be healthy. And so, um, so yeah, so now you've got someone that's, you know, that's sitting in a high rise and, 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 you know, it's funny, right. They're building a bunch of residential towers here. And that's another interesting thought we've had recently is, you know, you've got a residential tower and now it's not only a residential tower, it's an office building as well. You know, cause for a long time I was begging for office. All we had were residences, but, but I don't need any more residents. I need someone to come Wednesday at lunch. Right. And I need I need that office traffic. And so now with people working from home and especially in a city like Austin, you're going to get a lot of that. And so now all of a sudden it's like oh, maybe I'll get, you know, I'll get a, you know, get a pasta salad and a sandwich from the from the sandwich shop. I can get, you know, kind of a roast chicken and 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 some collard greens from the smokehouse or, you know, what well, maybe I do feel like a bratwurst or French fries today. And so, um, you know, kind of having that variety and 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 then there's a, a, a whole interesting model we're doing with how we're going about service and leveraging hospitality along with um, uh, a technology and uh, uh, that, I, that I think is actually relatively unique, certainly here in town, but, but I think in the country. Are some of the changes you're making, if I'm hearing you correctly, are you're not going to really realize the, the big upside for a couple of years. You're just kind of positioning yourself. So when the dust settles with all the construction and, and offices, buildings or, uh, you know, have tenants. Um, you're ready. You're ready to, to capture that market when things really kind of take off. Man, I, I, I hope not, but I'm, but that's what I'm prepared for. Right. So the, the mm -hmm. hope, like there's no reason what we're doing shouldn't appeal to people in Austin right now. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I think this is, this is how we maximize what I really consider to be our opportunity into the future what's hard to judge right now. And I'll tell you when we get to either the, the middle of this month, beginning of next month, right? Like, you know, cause you have, you know, the sort of that density of construction kind of hit at the same time that the heat hit. And so what's, what's at play here, right? And so as, as the heat simmers down, um, we, we'll see how much, you know, sales are going to be impacted because kind of coming up into May, man, we were killing them. We were absolutely knocking them dead. June was a bloodbath. July was not much better. In August, we didn't break any records in either. So uh, mm -hmm. fingers crossed the middle of September and October. But 
But once again, right, like it's we knew the construction was coming. We accepted the reality of it. We hoarded cash like crazy. Right. And and said, hey, we're like, we got to get through this period. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst and accept reality as it is. And that just to kind of underline what you're talking about, it's the result of the fact that since you are so large, uh, a large preponderance of your seating is outside. So you're a weather permitting type business, hot summer. I think you were telling me something like 400 and some seats, but only 100 are inside. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So, so, so that's the reason why sure hot summers can really adversely affect you. But um but uh, the next thing I'd just love to have a little comment on, because I know a lot of independents are tagging with this one, too, is the balance of how to utilize and what type of technology to utilize to help their service, to help their management. Uh, we're moving into that age now, and it's it's not a one size fits all. So what are the types of things that help you? Is it is it a technology type of uh, HR program to help with schedule and communication? Is it product management? Uh, what are you using technology for right now that helps? Yeah, I mean, look, again, this is something you might have to cut me off on because we just, you know, we're, we're in the midst of this transformation. So we just started to institute a piece of technology called me and you. So me ampersand you. So kind of like a play on menu. I don't know if you guys are, Familiar with that or seeing the market or not? Uh, sure. Um, and so, you know, and we're pairing that with our, our point of sale system, Toast, right? So those two things integrate together. And so, as I said before, we're going for this hybrid food hall model. So the idea is you're seated from the host stand. You have a server that has a slice, but you will also have the QR code. And so we are encouraging our guests to leverage the technology as much as possible. But if you're like, look, I don't ever want to see a QR code again in my life, which, by the way, kind of in that camp, we're happy to take your order. We're happy to bring out additional stuff and layer the hospitality in. Right. And so, like, you know, kind of, it's, you know, the, the host comes and seats you. Your server comes right over with four beer tasters and say, hey, let me let's try this out. You know, while well, you guys are kind of thinking about that. You know, I, I'll be here. I'll be walking around. But guess what? You don't even need me. You're welcome. to. I'm going to continue to check on you. I'm here to answer any questions. But this technology right here allows you kind of the independence, never need to wait for a check, never need to do anything like that. So a lot of it is us playing with the greet right now and how we introduce that as a positive thing, which, by the way, we have not nailed. We are still that is very much a work in progress and it's difficult. But, man, we've seen we have we have seen, especially when you got eight players on the floor, um, a, a, a dramatic increase in efficiency if it's being used correctly. And, you know, look, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on, on the tech side. It's, I believe, the best thing out there. Doesn't mean it's the best, um, but it's much better than kind of what you can get just off of Toast natively. Um, and, um, and yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of, you know, other things. We've, we brought everybody onto our whole front of house is on an hourly pay system now, um, you know, and, and we, we, and that's another kind of a wild thing that that's, you know, somewhat unique, but um, yeah, I don't know if that if that answered the question. So, so again, technology. Yeah, it, so. you're, we're catching you in the midst of an awful lot of stuff. You know, yeah, yeah. You really, we're going to have really to are. do a uh, comeback update in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, to get an update of how all of these things were implemented. Well, and here's the thing, right? Like you, you think here's here's the paradigm shift, right? And 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 I, and I think here's one of the 
you know, you, you hear these buzzwords about like, oh, well, you know, the, the restaurant model's broken, it's broken, it doesn't work. So like, okay, well, what does that mean, right? Well, here's what I, here's my interpretation of it, right, is, you know, it, it, for a long time, you're, you're, you know, if you think about, you know, if anyone that's interested, MIT keeps a database of, it's a living wage database, and you can drill down, I think, to the county level, and you can see by metrics, right? So, you know, single parent with one kid, you know, working family with three kids. So there's kind of these different things. And you can see, hey, what is actually, what is an actual living wage in my town, right? You might not want to look at it because it's kind of like a boogeyman, but it's an interesting thing to look at, right? So you just Google MIT living wage database. And the reality is like, we, we were not paying our, our back of house a living wage. And our front of house was only seasonally making a living wage, right? And so, you know, we tried to be a good organization. And, and so, you know, we're giving out micro loans all the time, interest-free, pay us back if you can, all of that. But it's also like, well, why are we having to give our people loans all the time, right? And 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 you have these aspirations of being a great place to work. But like, you know, and I got this whole blurb I wrote on it, but like it, it ultimately goes back to Maslow's, you know, hierarchy and needs. And if you can't pay your rent consistently, there's no like higher level growth. There's none of this going to happen that like I get off on and that I think is cool. And I espouse as an owner, like you got to pay your people. Right. And so how does that work? What's the, what I believe is there's a, there's a seasonality to the business. And we've been trained as restaurant owners and operators to think in a macro sense. We got to manage the shift to get to the day, to get to the week, to get to the month, to get to the year. It's a, it's a business of nickels and dimes to get to a dollar and this and that, right? Like you got to turn that on its head. Because what happens is, is we're saying as owners, hey, you you server, you're the one who's going to eat those swings. Not me. You're going to eat those swings, even though you can't afford it. But as I step back, and if I instead of looking hour to hour, day to day, shift to shift, I look quarter to quarter. Those swings start to smooth themselves out. And now I, I, I take. So what we've done is we've taken we, we put in a 20 percent service charge it's our money and we use that money to pay our people to offset. But like you want to talk about a pay range, we're paying our bartenders $37 an hour right now. Our busters are getting paid $22 an hour right now. And then you have kind of a range that kind of goes in between that. That's a living wage. Like Like if you really want your people to not keep coming to you for loans and things like that and be able to afford to live in the city, at least in Austin, Texas, those are the, that's the pay range that you need to pay people. And the only way that that makes sense, because I can tell you what, didn't make sense in June, didn't make sense in July, didn't make sense in August, but it probably makes sense in September. It's sure. probably going to make sense in October. We can, we're going to get to, you know, event season in December. We're going to kill them, right? And so, so we as a business, right, with a lot more resources, we have actually the ability to weather that storm and right. take a little bit of a different view with it. And so, look, it might not work. It might be a pipe dream, but but it's it, the reason I think it hasn't. No one's been able to make sense of it up to this point is because you're looking at it month to month, and it right. absolutely will not make sense in certain months and probably multiple months in a row. But if you take a longer view and you've got the right mix of things, it starts to make more sense. What an interesting perspective. Um- you know, so much what we discuss with operators is say, listen, if you're not looking at your PL, you know, once a week, 
even more frequently, you're going to get behind the curve on managing your costs. But what you're saying is, and you're not saying not to do that, but you're taking this longer view where that some of these that month where you're freaking out because your 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 prime cost is high and your labor costs seem like, oh my goodness, how are we gonna handle this? You're telling me if I'm hearing you correctly, it could smooth out. Sure. And you don't have to start cut tightening your belt and watering down your soup so much um if you take a longer view. Am I getting it? That's yeah, that's right. And look, we're a highly profitable business, right? Mm-hmm. So part of it is like you, you got you, like that element needs to be there, right? And so, because you, because again, you got to weather the storm. It is you are losing money. Let me be super clear: you're losing money on the months where you lose money, right? And you need to be able to kind of digest that. It doesn't mean you're not continuing to manage. Quite the opposite. But what's the perspective on management that you're that you're talking to these people about, right? And and it's more about right now, at least in the beginning, these these stages is. All we're managing on is progress. We know this isn't going to make sense relative to your brain. Look at last week and this week. How did that yeah. labor percentage shrink or expand? Right, like how, you know, how how did how did we get to our to our how close did we get to to you know to kind of our hourly projections and so forth? And so for right now, and again, I just had my you know kind of same page meeting with my director of operations yesterday, and we're, and we're talking about like this conversation he had with our kind of part of our events team and it was just that they're like we don't know how to manage this we don't know what to do and, and he just he's like and again he couldn't hear couldn't hear what he was saying and he was just like listen it's about progress all you need to look at is progress because you know especially on the event side what they were talking about specifically was again two dollars and 15 cents an hour working off of a tip pool bring everybody in throw bodies it's like you know like russians fighting a war right like just throw bodies at it you can make anything fine but like but now you're paying someone $37 an hour. Well, and there's yeah. a lot, you know, there's there's some evidence of what you're saying, maybe not at the high level that you just mentioned. But I am reminded, though, of many people that have already sort of chucked that sub-minimum wage uh, and make it up in tips. So there isn't any more the 201. There's the above minimum wage. This way, all tips are pooled. It it does make things a little more equitable, back of the house, front of the house. People have a more average hourly wage that's higher. So, you know, Barry, uh, this is the kind of principle that I think can gain in popularity. And the thing that I just want to quickly underline and place a little emphasis on is the fact that it works when you step back and look at the larger picture. So no, that doesn't mean to the listeners that we shouldn't be looking at our weekly numbers. But what it does mean is that you have to have an annual plan and you have to look at the big picture. You have to go quarter by quarter, just as Ben has been stating. And I think that's where some of us as operators fail. That's a great point that you made. Unfortunately, I think it's going to have to be the point that we end on. I think we're going to have to kind of wrap up at this time. But but we have really, really loved mm-hmm. learning about bangers and learning from the business principles that you've shared with us today. Ben, thanks very much. I, I mean, that was illuminating. I really appreciate you taking time with us today. Yeah, yeah, Chris, very ha- like happy to do it. Always an honor uh, to be asked to do stuff like this, and and uh, and I enjoyed it as well. So thank you very much. Well, good luck to you, and we are going to have to have you come back, especially as construction ends, and we get to talk to you a little bit more about how this evolve paid off. Absolutely. Yeah. Happy, happy to update you. 
Okay. Hope to hear from everybody soon. Hope we get to see you again on a corner booth real soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the corner booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.